All right, everybody, welcome to the September 8th edition of Cascadian Views. I've got the, the classic lineup with Dan and JJ here today. Hello, hello. Howdy. Um, we've had a lot happen. Um, there's going to be a lot of palace intrigue, but I think we'll start with the the most pressing news of the week, which was the Kavanaugh um, confirmation hearings. And they really circled around one or two people, at least as far as votes in play go. Um, Collins and Murkowski, for the most part. Yeah. Um, and a, a lot of what you saw going on was really wrestling for those two votes. Um, on that note, JJ, you shared a wonderful link. Um, Collins is under pressure as one of the few pro-choice Republicans in the Senate, or at least she claims to be when it's, you know, convenient for her. Mm-hmm. Um and Kavanaugh is under a lot of scrutiny because there is ample evidence that he is crazy. Well, yes, but more that. specifically <laughs> that he believes that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided. Yeah. Um, I, I think exhibit A for that is that he was nominated by a Republican president. Zing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, now, Collins, your link from the Hill was pretty... It's a type of protest that I can wholeheartedly get behind. Uh, it had a, a rather gruesome message, coat hanger abortions, back alley abortions. She got a delivery of 3,000 coat hangers to her office, uh, which if that does not grab her attention and illustrate the stakes, I do not know much else that will. Uh, though there's also, uh, they mention it in the, in the second paragraph, but they don't go too deeply into it, but... Um... There's also a large crowdfunding movement um, that I think is, I didn't check it since, it's been two days since I looked at it, but it was uh, like 450 grand two days ago. Uh, We'll go to any Democrat who will run against Susan Collins in Maine uh, if she votes for Kavanaugh. Right. She's up in 2020, right? Yeah, yeah, but it's also been more than two decades since she failed to clear 60% of the vote. So oh, I'm for a sure. a little bit skeptical. In fact, she yeah. got 68% in her last election. Uh, wow. Yeah, I mean, it's tough to beat Collins in a general election, but, man, she's been playing this game for so long. Yeah, like, she, she can't keep playing with fire. Exactly. Get she's She's got her got her constituents convinced that maybe she's just a rube for McConnell and all this stuff happens where she gets these deals and then it turns out it's the opposite of what she thought. Uh, I don't know how long people are going to keep up with that, honestly, and start to conclude, okay, this is actually the policy conclusion that she wants. And maybe that's what the people of Maine want, but I hope not. I mean, that's, I think it's a closer call than what she assumes. Yeah, she's really, really good right now at playing stupid. Yeah, yeah. And and she's basically got that down to an art. Yeah. At some point, yeah, the people in Maine have to realize that you know she's not the one that's dumb. They're the marks. They're gonna have to figure it out. Yeah, I don't think that they're really going to. <laughs> My experiences in Maine suggest that that's going to be a hard learned lesson. As well as I guess it has, because she's been reelected for quite a while. They, they elected Paul LePage twice. So. Well, yeah, right. Like <laughs> they've done worse. Yeah, the voters of Maine definitely don't mind being burned twice in a row. Maine is really a, a very geographically divided state. When you look at the the southern coast, uh, Portland, not my Portland, but Portland, Maine, and the like, it's. It's any other New England town that you would find in Massachusetts or Rhode Island or, or Connecticut. When you get out into the hinterlands, it's fucking Alabama with snow. Yeah, it is straight up banjo country real quick. It is, it was, it was hilarious. And then it was scary. And it's like, I lived just outside of Portland. I lived in Saco and yeah, we drove north at one point in time. <laughs> and uh, 
got lost somewhere. God, we got lost for like two hours on some little dinky ass highway through just miles of apple orchards. And that's all that it was in like the dead of night. It was pretty freaky. I'm that sure it would have like been gorgeous in the day. Movie. I'm trying to imagine you ain't from around here, boy, but with this heavy main accent. But with like a French Canadian Mainer accent. Yeah, exactly. Something like Paula Page saying it. Right. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> there was a, another eye-catching protest that went on at, at least the first day. I didn't see them the second day. Um, ranks of women dressed like uh, they were in The Handmaid's Tale thanks to the hearing room uh, on the first day. It was something that got a lot of attention. They really stood out in the red red gowns and the, the covered faces and whatnot. It looked creepy since we're keeping up the, the horror movie vibe. Yeah. Uh, but that was an entirely nonverbal protest. They wouldn't speak one. Yeah, that's, that's the best way to be able to stay in the room for a little bit longer. There were a huge number of arrests. Uh, I think the the Capitol Police said something like 175. Holy cow. Yeah, they're uh, one of the most memorable moments, although it did not end up being an arrest, although security did eventually get involved since it involved a, a gallery member approaching the, the nominee, was the father of one of the women, young women killed in the Parkland massacre, went to shake Kavanaugh's hand and in a very cold moment, he looked him up and down and then spun on his heel and walked away. Uh, this did not make for good optics, and they recognized that. The, the very next day, the second day, there was a special set-aside moment where they got to talk and introduce themselves to each other and shake hands and all that. So the White House, I guess, realized that was not so great pretty quick. But uh, the fact that it happened in the first place, and that was the initial reaction from the nominee, is telling, I would say. Yeah, that was that was a pretty bad yeah that, that one was rough <laughs> yeah um the the kavanaugh confirmation hearing hit some bumps uh cory booker and kamala harris and patrick Leahy, in a very unified manner all went after the chairman uh trying to get itself uh the committee itself adjourned for the day the chairman grassley uh did not follow Senate procedure. That's actually a privileged motion. They are entitled to a vote on it. Um, he denied the vote. The vote would have failed. It would have failed along party lines. He just didn't want to give them the pleasure of having the vote, which I'm surprised they didn't get the parliamentarian involved. That actually is completely counter to Senate procedure on a privileged motion. Shocker. It's been such a farce anyway from the very start. I mean, Grassley was withholding documents from you know, the committee Democrats until the last possible minute. I think he gave them, what, 42,000 documents on Sunday night, like immediately, or Monday night, immediately before the hearings began. Like, oh, yeah, here they are, you know, that sort of thing. You can review them now, and hopefully you'll be very prepared for uh, a Supreme Court justice, a potential Supreme Court justice hearing, and so many more that have not actually been released to the committee members to actually have a reasonable way of evaluating this nominee. Uh, Booker tried his best to get himself thrown out of the Senate. <laughs> uh, he was threatened with that by, by John Cornyn, the, uh, the number two Republican in the Senate. Uh, and then the Republicans backed down and said that uh, they had actually approved Booker's uh, yeah. committee confidential documents for release at 4.15 in the morning. And then Booger, just to prod him some more, released some other documents that were definitely not cleared. <laughs> uh, just to pick the fight, really. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'll directly quote Cory Booker from the floor of the Senate. Bring it. That, is that was what your New Jersey senator said. It was a wonderful moment. Harris also joined him in releasing documents that were not cleared for release. But uh, of all people, ancient Vermont Senator, uh, Chris's hometown Senator, Patrick Leahy kicked all this off by dumping something like 4,000 committee confidential wow. documents onto Twitter, um, alleging that Kavanaugh had hacked his emails back in the Bush era, uh, or at least was in possession of his hacked emails from the Bush era. It was a, a, a scandal at the time. It mm -hmm. feels like it was a major scandal, but you know, with Iraq and everything coming down, it, it kind of got lost in the flurry. But these 
these emails were stolen from judiciary dems uh when they were trying to switch through i think it was the alito uh, i lost you there brock yeah oh i'm i'm sorry am i here I yeah yeah there you're back okay um what was the last thing i said uh, I think you were getting onto the uh, stolen emails uh, from oh, yeah. 2000, 2003. Uh, yeah. Yeah, this was a, a pretty major scandal in my mind, but in the whole scheme of the Iraq War and Katrina, everything that happened with Bush, it kind of got overlooked a little bit. It's more minor in comparison. This was, I believe, this was the Alito nomination. Am I am I missing? Uh, uh, nope. Uh, this is uh, William Pryor being nominated to uh, federal appeals court. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Leahy went after this. And this was the one that I actually thought had the most legs. Booker and Harris is great to their base. Um, I, I think they earned a lot of points. I think both of them, even though Booker denied that he would ever run for president, I think both of them uh, really raised their profile in that regard with this. This yeah. is exactly what the progressive base wants to see. But in terms of perhaps getting some institutionalist Republicans mm -hmm. on the no train, I think Leahy's attack was the most consequential however it, it doesn't really seem to have done anything well yeah i mean this is what they've done their whole careers for and what mcconnell would give up anything for uh also notable in this whole exchange particularly relating to these emails uh in the course of questioning about this kavanaugh actually lied lied to congress over the course of the hearing uh saying that he had nothing to do It's relatively clear that that's not true. Oh, wait. Yeah, no, we lost you. Um, at, Am I still there? At not true. Yeah, you're here now. Yeah, okay, yeah. So, yeah, he, I think at least four points, he was uh, basically saying things that weren't true. Uh, it's, you know, I think the expert opinion is that it's not really going to be sufficient to say, charge him with perjury and try to impeach him later, but... You know, it's something that, you know, the Democrats can at least hang on him again and say, look, he he lied to Congress in the course of his uh, his uh, vetting, his, uh, his uh, I'm sorry, the, I am having a brain fart or a stroke or something, I'm forgetting the term for, his confirmation process. Uh, so hopefully that's something that can, that red state Democrats can kind of lean on if they're going to vote no and uh, preserve you know, some activist enthusiasm as they get into the last stretch of the election. Is the um, process for impeaching a SCOTUS member the same as impeaching POTUS? Yes. Yeah, it's so, exactly the same. So, oh, okay. So just, it's uh, basically impossible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, okay. Yeah. Like functionally impossible right now. Yeah. Yeah. There. Yeah. It's, it's happened. Well, it's been threatened twice before. Uh, one Supreme Court justice in 1804, way, way, way back, um, survived impeachment trial in the Senate and was impeached by the House. And the other time it was threatened uh, was actually fairly recently, back in the 60s, I believe, uh, with an obviously corrupt judge who simply could not remain. And he was told he was going to be impeached, and he resigned. Yeah. Different, different time. And when people pretended to have decency. Mm -hmm. Um, so there are two things I want to say about the, the whole lying under oath thing. He definitely lied, but I believe he left himself enough wiggle room to not perjure himself. Dan, I, I yeah. think you're 100% correct there. Um, the second thing, and this is just kind of an irony of, of history here, uh, there's actually been a referral for a perjury charge on this uh, to the, the D.C. Circuit. Guess, guess who gets to review that? It's not Kavanaugh, is it, or is it Merrick Garland? It's Merrick Garland. <laughs> he, he is he is the judge that gets to review the the complaint. Oh wow! Oh man! He's probably not going to opt for for prosecution. Probably. I would hazard a guess. Uh, yeah. But just one of those historical ironies there. Yeah. Jesus! Wow. Okay. Um, that's Kavanaugh's probably going to win the bench. Maybe not. We'll know by next week's episode. I hope not, but we'll see. Uh, let's move on to the, the the real fireworks story. We had, well, I'm, I'm saying it a lot, but we had a hell of a year Wednesday. <laughs> and we into Thursday there. Yeah. Um, 
the the first excerpts from Bob Woodward's book, Fear, the the Trump White House, Inside the Trump White House, uh, came out, and it is it is not a pretty picture. Um, one reviewer described it, and I agree wholeheartedly with this that it's a slow motion administrative coup going on in the presidency. The the president's aides are stealing papers off his desk in order for him to not see things. Uh, unless you think Woodward is lying, he has a picture of the document that uh, I believe it was McGahn stole mm-hmm. uh, that starts his book. Uh, the letter that would pull the U.S. out of a trade agreement with South Korea. It's reproduced in the book. So the Trump world is trying to deny that any of this happened. But I'm, if anybody has the receipts, it's Bob Woodward. It's Woodward. Yeah, this is his thing. I mean, like it or not, he he sucks up to presidents he likes. He he definitely takes down presidents he doesn't like, but he doesn't do it by lying. He may do it by picking and choosing, but it's not by lying. Yeah, I mean, and it does sync up with you know other stuff that we've heard. This is just all of the dramatic nitty gritty details, which are both terrifying and kind of nice to read. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this, huh, the administrative coup. I mean, this is this is terrible. This is. I I feel very easily a, a solid constitutional crisis. Yeah, it's the kind of thing where there's not really anyone to root for because it's bad that the president is incompetent and unstable, but it's also bad that a bunch of people around him that nobody elected have uh, taken it upon themselves to just decide which of his uh, directives they're going to follow and which are not, and hiding information from him and just outright refusing to do what he says, which all of that is just not compatible at all with a constitutional democracy. And it, when you get down to it, there are appropriate remedies to deal with it, but I guess we just can't because uh, partisanship, I suppose. Well, and, and, you know, they're all, probably a large majority of them are big followers of Ayn Rand. Yeah. And it's, it's you know, one of those things that I, I mentioned on the Facebook page, and, and I feel bears mentioning again, like, these people have really painted themselves as a hero and doing the country a solid... But they did volunteer to work in this White House. Yep. And there should be no surprise that this is a crazy White House. You know what you bought into with this one. It was not false advertising. Yeah. So these are not good people who think that they're trying to do us a solid. There was one case in the Woodward book that came out um, about the president ordering an assassination ordering Mattis to carry it out. And uh, let's be frank, it's an assassination I probably wouldn't be all that upset about. It was Bashar al-Assad. But it was after Russia had gotten involved, after Syria was crawling with Russian tanks, American soldiers. There is ample opportunity for this to go bad. Like, the time for action was a while ago. It was six years ago. Um, At this point, you can't do anything without fucking the whole thing over. President Trump orders the assassination. Mattis says, yes, sir, hangs up the phone, tells everybody around him, we're not doing that. Just completely refuses the order. Uh, And I, while I agree that that was a shitty order, I have deep reservations about a military that becomes more comfortable shrugging off civilian complaints. That is terrifying to me. Uh, And JJ, it's actually something you brought up like a year and a half ago when we were talking about the transgender ban. And the military basically said, we don't take policy from a tool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're, we're not doing this. Yeah. Um, and you were like, it, it sounds like they're setting up for a, a dry run to just ignore some orders. And, and here we are. Yeah. Exactly. And, and yeah. now the orders have gotten a whole lot bigger. But, you know, deep state, man. Deep state has everywhere something brought oh, so God. that's enough of a justification to just kind of kick it all out the window, I guess. So let's let's talk about that deep state because about twelve hours later there was uh, 
It wasn't the first anonymous op-ed in the history of the New York Times, but it was one of the uh, very few. You can count them on two hands in the, the over 100-year history of this paper. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. 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 Uh, I believe the New York Times in-house historians have weighed in with solo since the... Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and it was from a, a high-level Trump administration source. They won't say who. Uh, they won't even identify gender, basically saying that they are the resistance, although they are careful to, you know, cage it off from the, the resistance of the left, as they say. Um, they're basically arguing they're the generic Republicans in the White House, making sure everything works the way Republicans want it to work. Uh, and it, it sent the world into a fucking shitstorm. It, it was insane. And yeah, and rightfully so. I mean, it's... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everything about this situation is heavily disconcerting. There is... Nothing in that op-ed makes me feel better about what was already a shithouse, crazy, shenanigan situation. Now I don't even know whose, like, bad idea it was. Was it Trump's bad idea? Or was it somebody else's bad idea? Right. What the hell is going on? It's like a debate over who's writing the tweets, only on a very scary scale. Uh, yeah. And apparently, they're not alone in the the reporting, in the follow-up to this. Uh, Numerous uh, Washington officials in the Trump administration are basically telling the press that, you know, they know. Everybody knows. They're all in on it, even as they make official denials. Uh, they're making anonymous confessions to the press. It's confirming what we already knew, basically. Uh, so I don't think it's shattering in that regard, but it's shattering that somebody actually put it into paper. And while I think that both sides have basically come to your general conclusion, JJ, that nothing this person's doing is making them a hero, at best self-serving, and at worst just a coup, um, I don't know where I was going with that thought. Um, yeah, I, I think that kind of describes it pretty well. I mean, it, I mean, the article itself, of course, isn't a coup, but what they're describing is certainly, yeah. It, it's not the doing what state. the president says, yeah, yeah. Well, not it, even the it, deep it, state, because these guys have been appointed by Trump. I mean, you think deep state, you think, like, people that carry on from his innocence. <laughs> yeah, technically, this is the shallow state. This is just, like, appointed <laughs> staffers. This is, yeah. this is the wade pool, not the deep state. These are the people he brought along with him that won't listen to what he says. The, the op-ed uh, writer gives precious little clues to his identity, but does identify himself in the same group as Trump so, yeah. Assuming he's whatever. Mitch McConnell is Spartacus. It was <laughs> Mitch the whole time. Oh um, man. man. The uh, the worst part about the Woodward uh, book and the op-ed is oh, this is where I was going with that earlier thought. It is the fact that somebody is writing it down. So much of a cult of personality depends on forcing people to accept that red is blue. <laughs> When you present the lie in front of them and demand that they take it seriously and make that a founding like tenant of your cult of personality, that's classical. That that's textbook. Having somebody put in black and white that no, it's not, is powerful. I think in a way. And while I'm not going to say the op-ed writer is a hero, I think it's very useful to have that out there. Uh, so many of the things that we see Trump say where he's outright lying and the newspapers don't include that information. They, they, the reporters are aware of it. We see them talking yeah. on Twitter all the time, but they don't actually put in writing, this is a lie. Mm-hmm. Having, having it front and center that this White House is unhinged and not out of a politician's mouth, not words that somebody says on stage, but having written in the paper of record an insider's account that says, this man is unhinged, I think matters a little bit. Uh, maybe not consequentially, but at least on some level, it is helpful. For sure. I think I think showing that the emperor has no clothes will be pretty effective for the base. I mean, fingers crossed. 
I mean, what really concerns me more is that what we appear to have is, you know, a whole party that has all agreed that the emperor has no clothes, but it's still the emperor. Mm-hmm. And so for them, like, the fact that it's Piggly Wiggly time isn't a problem. It's just inconvenient. Yeah. Um, and I hope that there be that there's a bit more of a dramatic effect towards his base, where, of course, you know, that's where the cult of personality is actually running, because nobody in the GOP is really in the cult of personality. They're, you know, they've seen this sort of thing before. Uh, you know, wheelers and dealers in Congress aren't going to really be swept up in this bullshit. And, and I think that's what we're seeing, is just people who are more than willing to play with, you know, the live dynamite, because it works for them right now. I mean, I, I think you're right that they know the Emperor has no clothes, but I mean, if you're a bureaucrat in, you know, 1930s Soviet Union, you know Stalin's crazy, but you go along with it for the paycheck, and, you know, before long, mm-hmm. you're fucking purged. For the people who, you know, buy into it. Right. I think it's, it's dangerous. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Oh, it's very dangerous. I think that they're counting on the fact that he's too stupid and easily distracted to hold a grudge for very long. Well, I guess you've seen they've got all the people that uh, are quoted in the Woodward book. They're just coming out and saying, nope, didn't say it. And I guess that's been good enough for him. Right, exactly. That's, That's all they have to do. Yeah. Look him dead in the eye, shake his hand, and say, No, sir, I did not say those things about you. I love you, Mr. President. I'd kiss you on the mouth right now. It's all fake news. And it'll be like, Oh, okay, cool. I love you. You were always my favorite. I like you more than Eric. You can come to my birthday party, John Kelly. Yeah, there you go. There'll be tanks and everything. So after the op-ed, Trump was apparently furious. He brought out a bunch of sheriffs to stand behind him while he said angry things about it. And then he went to a rally in Montana. Tin pot dictator shit. Just yeah. want to throw that out there. Mm-hmm. And then he went to a rally in Montana, fired up by apparently his base. Only his base wasn't fully there. There were a couple, uh, let's say, social media moments uh, from that rally. There was a skeptical millennial, I think is what he ended up being dubbed. Uh, That's an excellent <laughs> term. Uh, a young kid in a blue plaid shirt. It's now come out that he's a high school kid. And also after the Trump campaign told him he had to move because he wasn't being enthusiastic enough. He got a 10 minute uh, holding with the Secret Service, uh, which also sounds like some tin pot dictatorship. Uh, you weren't appropriately enthusiastic at the rally for Dear leaders, so we're going to send the secret police to talk to you for a while. <laughs> like, didn't you just lectured a teenager about not being enthusiastic? Have you not watched <laughs> any, like, coming-of-age movie in the past four decades? That's impossible. So, according to the kid, Secret Service was actually pretty nice to him and let him go after about ten minutes. They had to talk to him, though, because he was referred to the Secret Service by the campaign. And he has to say that they were nice to him because this is Soviet Russia and they'll fucking ship him to Siberia or, you know, Fairbanks. They'll make him go work in heart. He's already in Montana. Oh, that's (laughs) true. He's already in... (laughs) Uh, Next to him was another... high school student i don't know if she was local or not a young lady in the dress and the maga hat who at at least two points during the rally conspicuously wiped her nose with the american flag oh well that's classy wow i did not see yeah. that one all oh, right well, that one's great too and uh <clears throat> unlike skeptical millennial who was you know got free tickets for being a student and was just coming along to see what was what and reacted, I think, appropriately to the amount of crazy shit coming out of Trump's mouth. Uh, the the young lady was a, a big supporter, so the wiping the nose on the flag just seemed, oh, pretty on point. Yeah, yeah. the Metaphorical. expected amount of thoughtless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's been the week in Trump world, and for the first time, we have a week in the Obama world talk about as well um obama hit the trail in support of of democratic candidates in a really big way 
Um, he made a huge speech where he directly took on Trump, and he talked about the fact that he hadn't been here for a while. And when he said he uh, he was going to follow the the long and wise path of American presidents in the past, who have mostly ridden off into the sunset and not stayed involved in politics, but in a in a very weird way that I don't think any other former president has been, Obama is still the leader of the Democrats. I, I mean, it at least feels that way to me. He's the most powerful voice we have. I, our Senate leader, Chuck Schumer, and you know he has his own problems, but God bless him, he's, he's been hard-nosed for at least some of this. Uh, he, he's not exactly a real media-friendly guy. He's the Chris Christie of the Democrats without all the extra weight. He's an asshole from New York. Uh, and Nancy Pelosi is, once again, God bless her, she was my congresswoman for a long time, but, I mean, she almost can remember when television was invented. She's, she's not a young lady who's out there ready to, to campaign across the country from stop to stop. She just doesn't have it in her. She may not live through the next session of Congress, so, I mean, what's in it for her, really, at some point? Uh, she could go off to just a much-deserved retirement. She's done a lot for the country, but come on, San Francisco. We can have somebody else there. <laughs> um, but o Obama still feels like a hardened troll. We have a, a generation of new leaders coming up that many faces are making a real impact. I absolutely believe that Beto O'Rourke is going to, on some level, speak for, for southern moderate Democrats, you know, the white guys in Texas who don't like Republicans who need a voice, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a, a young, vibrant, progressive voice that I think is going to sweep a lot of people up. We have the next generation of leaders entering government right now, but currently, the only person we have with any standing is Obama, so I'm really happy to see it. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think of kind of an analogous time in you know the history of the Democratic Party. You know, like you know, say immediately after the 2000 election or something like that. And yeah, I don't think I don't remember Bill Clinton playing a similar similar role. He no, he didn't stayed really very low profile. Until, yeah, he didn't really show up at the DNC even until Obama was in office, and then he started giving speeches that are invented. Yeah, I'm he must have spoken at the 2004 DNC, but I can't. Yeah, I don't really remember it because uh, Obama really stole the show that year, of course. Uh, but yeah, huh. Interesting. And yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It, well, there's, I mean, I think there's a lot of people who are in the wings to claim that leadership role, but there are just so many of them right now. And there's so many people really to choose from, and it's going to be a brutal free-for-all primary uh, starting in about, I guess, two months from today, really. Uh, so we can look forward to that. But, uh, yeah, at this point, there's really only one unifying figure that um, pretty much all constituencies can get behind and say, yeah, this is someone who articulates, you know, 90% of what we believe in. And he, he really did do a good job of unifying thought he he reached across to the progressive wing new ideas that he endorsed medicare for all mm -hmm. was one of the big ones that he hit on uh, debt-free college uh notice he didn't say free college debt-free is actually a model that the uh the ivy league is moving into as a whole and by ivy league i actually mean the athletic league they implemented yeah. it through through those rules um but it's they they charge as much as a student can afford to pay without going yeah. It's not quite the same thing, but it is kind of a bridge to there and something I think we would all like to see. I mean, sure. if you're, I know equality for all is really an end goal, but if your family has, you know, 15 million in the bank, I think you can afford to pay for a little bit of college, at least more than, say, somebody who comes from a working class family. Mm -hmm. So I, I view it as a step there. I mean, maybe JJ will yell at us for being incrementalist and all. No, I mean, it's fine, like, <laughs> so as long as that's actually reasonable and does take into account people's real incomes, then yeah, sure, 
Yeah. I mean, it is a real-world solution right now. Uh, I mean, I it's, it's not... Sus- in the Ivy League have gone to. But well, exactly. Like, like, I feel like it's only sustainable on the Ivy League level because that's the only level where you're getting the 1%. Right. Yeah, the 1% doesn't that. go to UAS, Brock. Like, <laughs> who well, the yeah, fuck subsidized but, uh, my education? Like, there wouldn't be enough rich people in most state schools to cover this kind I, of thing i mean i i do know that harvard takes in more low-income students than the national average and i believe yale also does the same on that um and there have been some other some other big moves on this nyu which is one of the largest uh research health universities in in the the country and one of the most prestigious uh recently moved to a completely tuition-free model for their med school uh, and refunded the last two years of tuition. For yeah, that's a super cool move. Yeah, so the way they're the way they're doing it is they're taking they have like a six billion dollar endowment. They're taking one point five uh, billion dollars or six hundred million dollars out of that, and they're they're asking for four hundred fifty million dollars in donations to their alumni. That money will be set aside, earning from it cover tuition for incoming med school classes. So. It works when you have billions of dollars at your university disposal. Well, and I like that one particularly too, because that's not only is that long range or long term educational planning, but it also is attacking a very, very central issue that we have in medicine in this country. In that, because their loans are so high for doctors, they tend to move into specialized areas. They don't work in clinics. They don't. We don't have as many general practitioners, like, and we don't have a, a broad spread of specialists, by my understanding. They're very selected fields that make the big box where most people end up. And so that they're hoping exactly. to get a more general range of education and doctors out there, which will solve a really, really big problem that we couldn't really get at. That is exactly how the university explained it. Uh, they have noticed in their, their alumni surveys that they do that because of the cost of student debt, uh, comparatively low-earning medical professions like general practitioner and the other one they singled out was uh, public research physicians uh, do not get new doctors. They, they simply can't afford to pay off their bills, and they thought that that was a problem. Um, we're very far afield from Obama being back on the campaign trail, but I thought that was a, a very productive discussion. Yeah. Um, to get back on topic a little bit, uh, this is not the last we've heard from Obama. He's given a couple news interviews with, shall we say, millennial-focused outfits since then. Uh, news Now and, I believe, Snapchat both huh. had uh, interviews with the president talking about how important it is to vote. He's hitting the campaign trail. He's going to be out there. He's going to be a fixture in the news, kind of an anti-Trump. Although it is somewhat risky, as has been pointed out by a lot of pundits, it gives Trump somebody to fight against. It gives him yeah. uh, an opponent. So he can focus his, his energy as well. It, it's kind of a calculated risk there. A, a little bit. I mean, I guess, yeah. I mean, the main difference I would see is that Obama's really not Hillary Clinton in terms of that kind of national ill will that's been spread out there, at least not beyond kind of the crazy portion of Trump's base. But I guess it's it's also a midterm election, so that's who he really needs to focus on getting out. So I could kind of see room for the argument there, too. He's also the guy who had the people in his coalition that Trump took to win that election. The, right. The Midwestern, like middle-class white, the, the guy who worked in the, the automobile industry without a college education. Those were those were a very central part of, of Obama's coalition. And he was able to tell the auto bailout basically ensured his 2012 re-election. He lost mm-hmm. white voters like 75 to 25 across the country. But if you went and you looked in Ohio, looked in Michigan, he split him dead even with Romney, 50-50. Yeah. Uh, these were guys he could he could point to his auto bailout and say, when nobody else in this country was behind you, I was here. These are the voters who flipped from Clinton to Trump uh, to, to flip the 2016 election. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, 
we'll we'll see how that plays out. I'm I'm hoping Obama still has a hold of it. Yeah, I the other benefit, neither Obama or Trump are currently on the ballot, so I don't know. Uh, I, I think it's still a net positive. I think we can certainly use everything we can in terms of you know again a unifying figure and getting a lot of the different factions to stop taking shots at each other. Or at least that's the hope. As long as it's not, you know, seen as kind of big footing for one group or another. Yeah, I mean, I think it. I think at this point in time, you know, people want to see him go shot for shot with Trump. Yeah. People, you know, uh, the key and peel sketch, man. People would love to see Obama with the gloves come off. Mm. People want to I see him really without an anger translator. Um, and people are pissed. Mm-hmm. Like I think. You know, it's it's definitely a common criticism of mine and, and many others that Democrats get a little spineless in a fight. Um, mm-hmm. The dude has nothing to lose at this point. Like, there's no other up. He's already been president. Yeah, just take pot shots at Trump and do so in the dignified manner that he's going to maintain just because that's who he is mm-hmm. and show people the contrast between what being presidential really looked like. Yeah. That that hits the nail on the head. When I was watching that Obama speech to those college kids, mm-hmm. I felt everything I remember from that man. Yeah. How it felt to, to have a leader, even if you don't agree with him, you could be proud of him. You could feel like he represented America well. Maybe not ideally. Unless you uh, thought he represented Kenya. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, in the speech, he really does take it to Trump in exactly the way you described. I was watching that last night, and yeah, he spared nothing. I I kind of thought Obama was being quiet because he was angling for a Supreme Court seat. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like he wanted to get involved in politics. But on the other hand, this is a fight that you can take and 20 years down the road point to as Mm -hmm. good judgment more than politics. Like, this was a time I stood up for America. So I, I, I'm not completely letting go of the idea that he may end up on the courts. It's happened before with an ex-president. I mean, yeah. he did say that uh, he had to stay out of the limelight for a year because he had to save his marriage. Right. <laughs> Which I completely understand and agree with. Absolutely. Like, yeah, dude, like, you, yeah, <laughs> have some time between you and your family because uh, you haven't had any time at all for eight years. Mm-hmm. Uh, to kind of tie up the political news, although we do have one more national story, uh, pa- Papadopoulos, mm-hmm. Greg Papadopoulos, George Papadopoulos, yeah. uh, was sentenced finally after many delays. Uh, he has received 14 days in jail, one year of probation, supervised release, I believe that's probation, a uh, hundred and some hours of community service, and a fine of like $5,000. He cooperated with the Mueller probe, but Mueller apparently did not trust him that much. Everything he gave them had to be uh, verified through other things. Mueller actually says in his sentencing paperwork that he learned much more from his emails than he did from uh, Papadopoulos himself. But we have another conviction on the record and jail time. I believe it's the first jail time of the, uh, the whole probe. Yeah. I guess so, because Manafort hasn't gone to jail. I guess he hasn't gone to jail yet. Well, he's he's remanded. He's in custody. But, yeah, Papadopoulos has been sentenced and is actually going to be serving for, yeah, two weeks. Yeah, not much. Did anybody have? No, nobody had Papadopoulos, did they? No, nobody knew who he was. (laughs) Yeah, because he was the (laughs) coffee guy, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We'll move on from that quickly. The other national bit of news we had was Nike unveiled the, I believe it's the 25th or 30th anniversary of their Just Do It campaign. Mm -hmm. Uh, The face of that campaign is former San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick, a man Nike has kept on their endorsement payroll for the last three years despite the fact that he has not played football anywhere. Um, Mm -hmm. Turns out this is why. Uh, It has 
apparently led to a resurgence in active sales. Their online sales were up 31% the weekend after they announced it. I don't know if that's going to sustain. Probably not. Um, but it is smart business sense for them. Kaepernick is uh, a very well-received figure among urban young people with spare money, a.k.a. Nike market. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nike doesn't really particularly care what the farmer in Oklahoma thinks because the farmer in Oklahoma is not buying Air Jordans. But if he is, he's going to burn them afterwards and post it on Snapchat. <laughs> That'll show the libs. That's right. Stupid libs. Yeah, I think it was Rich from Big and Rich, which is apparently a country music band. I did not know this until this whole controversy broke out. Shared pictures of their drummer, who they identified as a former Marine Corps veteran, uh, cutting out the Nike swoosh from his socks. That's the dumbest shit I could possibly imagine. Nike already has your money, bro. Now you just ruined a pair of socks you had. It's not like you get your money back from Nike. Also, like, something that just strikes me is, like, part of the aesthetics of all of this is, like, because of who it is that's doing this, they're trying to make it look really hyper-masculine, but you're cutting, like, a little tiny patch off of your clothes, so it's all so delicate work, and you just can't, you know, hulk out on, like, an inch-by-two-inch section of your shoe or your shorts. Like, it just, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> so I was expecting Trump to go apocalyptic over this, and uh, he did not. Mm -hmm. To his credit, he did not. In fact... He had probably an even more Trumpier response than I could have possibly imagined. Although if you had given me like some Mentax and three hours, I probably could have figured out he would have done this. He he said Nike pays a lot of rent. He's one of his tenants, so uh, he's not going to say anything. Basically, the exact words out of his mouth. Wow. Nike's a tenant of mine. They pay a lot of rent. Is a direct quote. Nike's a tenant yeah. of mine. They pay a lot of rent. I guess that's uh, one way to do it. Uh, I I thought also he, he loves money exactly. even more than he than he, he loved yelling at black people. Huh. It was a All right. Well, I mean, and you know, also just to be fair, it's it's not like Nike did a good thing here either. <laughs> like they still have sweatshops. It's not like Nike's a good place or part of hashtag the resistance or anything. Like, no. They still but suck. But I, I do want to give them a little bit of kudos for, for keeping Kaepernick on their payroll for this long. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not going to pretend it's not self-serving. It makes good business sense. Being able, It was honestly worth the $20 million that they spent paying this guy for three years without him doing anything just for this campaign because I'm sure I'm sure they're going to get enough of people being like, aha, Trump hates them. I'm going to go buy some Nikes and make up that money four or five times. Sure, but, you yeah. know, it would have been so much better had they spent that money on, you know, sweatshops so that those people were paid, oh, yeah. like, a, you know, a wage and not whatever I happens. Am, I am with you on that 100%. Um, I was just pointing out that I do think they deserve a little bit of credit, sure. but I'm not going to pretend like it was selfless. They yeah. have a good business reason for doing it. Yeah, this they is made more money an than amazing advertising campaign. I mean, they it's a very small ad buy that got national news coverage for, what, three days? Yeah, well, it's, yeah like the better part of this week. Yeah, it's a little bit bigger than a small one. It it was a halftime ad in Thursday Night Football this week. That's not super oh, okay. cheap airtime. Well, yeah, but that's only like one, like only like one thing though. Well, yeah, but they got they got millions. Of oh yeah, cars. they they, they got their bang for they got bang for their buck. Yeah. Um. All right, we'll move on to the local stuff then. Uh, and there's. Some more news on the teacher strike in Washington mm -hmm. still going on, still mostly confined to the southwest of Washington. Yeah. Um, there has now been a court ruling uh, declaring the strikes illegal, if I'm uh, following this correctly, but nothing is happening. There's no punishment. There's no... Yeah. Well, that's, that's generally the case in most collective bargaining statutes relating to the public sector. Uh, pretty much... Anybody, government employees, even if they're unionized, are not legally allowed to strike. Uh, they do. Uh, 
generally speaking, especially, you know, teachers tend to. Uh, but uh, what that means when a strike is illegal is that it is not prohibited for the employer to retaliate against the strikers. So, so you can hire scabs and fire the people striking? Exactly. Now, in practice, if a strike is successful, then that doesn't happen. You know, part of it is, you know, amnesty for the strikers. They all come back to work and then, you know, everything goes back to, you know, as it was. Yeah, if the strike is successful. But yeah, I mean that, you know, it's kind of a nasty move by some of these school districts just trying to I, I, I agree with the uh, spokespeople for the union. It, it's kind of an intimidation move. Everyone knows that, you know, it's not legal for, you know, public employees to strike, but they do. That is kind of the culture. Especially for teachers. I don't really yeah. consider those public employees the same way I consider, like, the IRS a public employee. Mm -hmm. Well, it's definitely more, you know, they're accountable more to local units, again, rather than, yeah, the big, you know, state entities or the federal government that kind of thing yeah there's is definitely more of a local relationship at least as it's modeled here in washington state and in other states where i've worked like alaska and i believe oregon as well so what is your view dan as somebody who follows education policy in washington pretty closely what's your your view of how far away these two sides are um, well, uh, I don't know exactly what's on the table in these school districts. Uh, I do know at least one of these uh, actually settled in the meantime since uh, publication. Tequila actually went off strike as of today. Uh, hmm. I guess, you know, we talked about this a little bit last week about, you know, some of these districts clinging to the 3.1%, uh, you know, quote unquote cap that had been included in the uh, legislative bill offering all this extra money. Uh, this was really just more of a suggestion. <laughs> when you get down to Last it. episode. Yeah, yeah, because there was no way to enforce it and no way for them to actually, you know, no consequences for a school district that uh, didn't follow it. Um, and, yeah, I, I think the, uh, the state government has certainly gone out of their way to say, look, you know, go get as much as you can. And that's, you know, what I think what all these folks are trying to do, um, whether or not I, I think what is happening, at least in some of these individual school districts, is the money that's gone out has not been not necessarily apportioned equally, you know, to each school district. Some are getting much more of a windfall than, windfall than others are. So my suspicion is that some of these that are still holding out and some of them that are still clinging are... Uh, acting uh, partly out of the belief that, you know, they're one of the ones that got shortchanged or at least didn't get as much uh, from the state in terms of the new funding structure. But, you know, I haven't looked specifically at these these districts. It's just kind of what I've seen around the state in terms of uh, what what's keeping agreements from being reached and what is actually getting things done. But, yeah, uh, also, I mean, the other thread that, you know, comes in here. This is also a very, you know, a relatively conservative region for Western Washington. When you look at it, you know, districts like, uh, you know, Centralia, Battleground, Evergreen, that's all Southwest Washington. That's all the area around Vancouver and close. To yeah, I was going to say Battleground is the, the hick suburb of our hick suburb. Exactly. Yeah, it's uh, so. I mean, these, these are the kind of places where, uh, even though it is you know along the I five corridor, the culture is still very much you know red state, very much Jamie Herrera Butler territory, that kind of thing. So that's probably a little bit of uh, the uh, I think fuel for this as well. Just you know, conservative local culture versus. Uh, you know, other school districts that are closer to Seattle and uh, more simpatico with uh, public employees in general and uh, passing through the money that the state has approved on to employees. All right. Well, that's, I guess, just going to do it for this week. We'll save the, the Senate update for next week since we're running out of time here. Let's, uh, let's go around and talk about what we're going to be following this week. Mm. I'll start with you, Dan. You don't often start this yeah uh, and i'm having a hard time thinking of one but uh, i think i pointed this out last year but uh david's 
David Simon's yeah, David Simon, right? Yeah, the the Wire. Yeah, his uh, new show is back this uh, this weekend. The Deuce, following uh, Adult Entertainment in New York City, in I think it was last season was the early 1970s. Uh, this season is going to be a bit of a time jump, I believe, to the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, that's starting up again tomorrow, and pretty much everything the man has put out is definitely worth watching, worth watching several times over, so I will be following. It's, you know, David Simon and porn. Who can beat it? Shit. <laughs> All right, JJ, how about you? Oh, let's see. Uh, I just got uh, football stuff. Um, we're on a MLS is on an international break, so uh, it's a bunch of friendlies, and a couple of countries in Europe are starting up a new thing called, what is it, the Nations League. So a bunch of international games this week. Uh, so the U.S. just got their asses whooped by Brazil yesterday. Um, that was pretty funny. Um, pretty brutal game. 2-0 loss, uh, and we play Mexico. I thought Brazil was bad at soccer again, or for the first time, or whatever. I thought they were bad at it. No, not really. They, no. I mean, they didn't get as far as they wanted to this World Cup, but they definitely didn't do very poorly. Just not as well as people expected them to. Okay. I guess that combined with a 7-1 to drubbing at Germany kind of soured me on them. Yeah, I mean, and that's fair, because, yeah, that 7-1 drubbing by Germany really, really... Yeah, they they were considered total crap for a couple of years, but they're they're okay now. People consider them to be okay now. Because <laughs> they didn't right. get their asses totally whooped in the World Cup. They, they definitely held their own. But, uh, yeah, U.S.-Mexico game um, uh, here in the States on Tuesday... So that'll be a really good game. That is always an excellent game. All right. Um, I will once again do football as well, although mine's the real football. Uh, fake football, college. fake news. <laughs> <laughs> hey, do your players beat women? Come on. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know what point you're making. <laughs> I just want to give a a shout-out to our long-suffering Oregon team, the Oregon State Beavers. They have long played in the shadow of the Ducks, uh, even back when the Ducks weren't very good. Oregon State was typically even worse. Corvallis has a lot of problems drafting players. It's a farm school in the middle of a cold area of the state. Not many people want to go there. There's nothing to do there. They don't have a lot of money. Their most rich alumni is probably Paul Reiser, the guy who founded Reiser's Foods. Uh, so they don't, you know, have an Uncle Knight backing them up. They are currently beating the living shit out of a team from the division down, somebody that they paid to come there just because they kicked their ass. Uh, it's it's just after halftime, they're up 41-16. to 16. They're going to suck. They're going to suck real hard. And they had to pay somebody to come into their stadium and take an L. Somebody who has like three-quarters of scholarships Oregon State's allowed to give. But you know what? God damn it, for one night, the Beavers are going to feel like they won a game. So I'm. For one night, they're going to feel <laughs> adequate. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, if, you, if you couldn't tell, I'm casting a lot of shade. The Beavers suck. I'm totally making fun of them for paying a, a crappier team to come to the stadium and get their ass kicked. Yeah, that's um, pretty rough. That's actually how college football works. Um, my first year in Portland, at my first job at a bar here, I was sitting, having a drink after work, watching some college football, talking to a guy next to me. He turned out to be the uh, director of football operations or assistant AG or whatever it is in college for Portland State, a, a FCS division down team. And uh, they were paid $400,000 to, to come play uh, an FBS school. I believe it was, it was Eugene. It was University of Oregon at the time. Um, and he was explaining to me that basically pays for their travel budget for the entire year. That, that pays for buses to every game, except it also pays for, you know, if there's a couple big games he wants the players to be rested for, really feel like they're having a trip. It pays for plane tickets for, you know, like one or two games so that they don't have to take a bus. 
it's really the whole ecosystem is built around this. These schools willingly take a game. Each each FBS team is allowed one game from a lower division opponent each year, and it's allowed to count. If they play two, only one of them gets to count. Uh, but the the rules are set up that way, and they, they pay these smaller schools uh, a big sum because they can afford it. They have 100,000-seat stadiums. The, the lower division schools aren't allowed to have stadiums that big. There's actual size restrictions. There's scholarship restrictions. There's budgets that you have to think about. And yeah, it's totally worth their while to come get their ass kicked by some mediocre state school and get a big pile of money for it. <laughs> I, I'm just looking up the Wikipedia right now for OSU, and um, wow, without even looking at it, you've pretty much nailed it. There is, in, term, in terms of notable alumni, I it's just a pretty short list, uh, at least in terms of anyone that you know anyone might have heard of. Uh, I guess highest. Well, I don't know. It's yeah, you 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 nailed it. <laughs> John John Ensign went there. Uh, so former U.S. senator, uh, uh, f- one of the founders of U-Haul, uh, <laughs> and two Playboy Playmates of the Year in the two thousands. So. I guess they had a good scouting team out in Western Oregon uh, for most of the. You know what? It's usually Arizona State that clears up the porn stuff. Yeah. <laughs> OSU, right up there. Oh, OSU, number two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it also does not help that Oregon and Oregon State are at the bottom of the Pac 12 in terms of endowment size, they have less money than the other schools. Uh, although Oregon has Uncle Phil, who has billions of dollars that he'll throw at them when they need it. Oregon State doesn't have that, so they got to live live within their means. Yep. And sometimes that means paying the Southern Utah Thunderbirds a shit ton of money to lose. They're currently down 16-41 to 41 in the third period. Third quarter. All right, guys. Thanks for joining me. I'm sorry I made you talk about college sports for a while. You'll get over it. <laughs> Have a good week. Have a good one, guys.